Uh, it's great to be back. Uh, enjoyed being here the first of October, which we weren't expecting at some point in time, but uh, enjoyed being with you then. And now we're glad to be back. It's hard to believe this is our 23rd year uh, in retirement and coming out here, and it's just hard to believe. And yet, uh, we thank, for, uh, thank the Lord for the way we got to know and grow and love you folks in the Lord. And uh, many have, of course, gone on to be with the Lord, and we keep meeting new ones each time we come. It truly is a pleasure uh, to be with you, and trust the Lord to bless our time together on the three times I'm scheduled to be here. Uh, again, as we prepare for ministry, we do a lot of, a lot of praying. When I say we, it's true of everyone who ministers God's Word. I'm not the only one who does a lot of praying. When it comes time to ministry, I, I know all of God's servants do that because you have to depend upon the Lord for wisdom and guidance and direction as to what he would have you share uh, with the uh, dear saints that you're going to be with. And what we're going to be looking at are the seven statements of Christ while on the cross. And you may say, well, that's, that's an interesting topic. You're going to be here for six lessons. Of course, there's seven of those. So I'm going to have to combine two somewhere along the line. And what got me started on this, uh, a couple of years ago I was uh, asked to spend a, nearly a month in Nassau uh, with uh, Shirley Heights Gospel Chapel over there. And part of the ministry was to work with a place called The Haven. It's a place where men, uh, ages from uh, teenagers all the way up into their 60s, who were afflicted with drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, physical abuse by family members, I mean, who had very difficult lives. And I had to twice a week, that would be seven times in the three and a half plus weeks we were there, meet with them uh, in the morning. And I truly enjoyed that because I was a counselor in high school. Didn't have much success in dealing with those things with people in the high school because I could never direct them to the person who could really help them. See, I wasn't allowed to do that. But here, I was able to do that. And of course, it's a great responsibility. I thought, well, you know, you have to keep this very simple. You want the gospel to be presented and all the ramifications of the gospel to be presented. So these men who probably had never heard really anything of this would be able to take from this and understand the great salvation that they could have in the Lord Jesus Christ and how he could change their lives. And the Lord laid in my heart these seven sayings, you know, why not just use the seven things that I said while on the cross? And of course, I had to really condense it there, but in the process of study, and I picked up all kinds of information, but I had to make it very short and condensed because you know people like this interrupt you all the time they have questions that they just throw out and I understood that so I was prepared for all that and you know the Lord really blessed that there it was amazing how over the seven periods of time we were together you could see them visibly and actively beginning to understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so I thought, well, I'm going to try to put this together. I think it would be helpful. So I tried it on a group where I normally minister on, and it was well received there as well. Wow, we never realized all that was involved in these seven little statements that the Lord made 
while on the cross. So we're going to look at that and trust that the Lord will use that in our hearts and lives to just once again appreciate even more and more just what was accomplished on the cross for us. So to begin with here, I'll just say a little introductory part before we get right into those. You know, Scripture vividly reveals the sufferings, you know, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, first of all, he suffered in leaving heaven's glory to come into this sinful world. We can't even imagine what that must have been like for him. You know, being God, he suffered in being made a little lower than the angels. In taking upon himself humanity. Well, we think we're big stuff. We're human beings. We're the top of the chain as the world looks at it. But for him, what a step down. The one of those that he created, he suffered in taking upon himself humanity. You know, he became the Son of Man. He must lay aside all of his visible and positional glory as God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8 reveal that pretty clearly. Being fully man, he was tempted by Satan. Think about that. He was tempted by Satan, the one he cast out of heaven because of sin. But being fully God, he never yielded to temptation, showing his moral glory as the Holy One of God. He suffered in being despised and rejected by those he came to redeem. That's why he came, and yet he was despised and rejected of men. He truly was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, as we read in Isaiah 53. His greatest suffering, of course, took place while he hung on the cross. For there he bore the judicial wrath of God as the sin of all mankind was placed upon him. Yes, the Lord suffered immensely. You know, and although he was silent in his sufferings leading up to the cross, once on the cross, he spoke seven times. Very short, very concise little statements. You know, we're going to look at those, each of those statements carefully because, you know, you know, these words spoken are words that reveal the excellencies of the one who suffered there. Words in which are wrapped up the gospel of our salvation. Words that inform us of the purpose, the meaning, the sufferings, and the, the sufficiency of death divine. So let's begin by the first statement. Ironically, it was read by somebody in the back this morning. I don't know what it was, because I don't turn around when people speak. So but let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 24. And here we have the first statement, and this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, I know all of you know these statements. I know you have read them many times. I know they have been alluded to many times as you gather at the Lord's table. And I know they're referred to many times as you listen to the Word of God spoken upon, particularly in a gospel-type message. But here in chapter 
23 of Luke, verse 34, we have his very first statement. You see, all the time he went through his life with all the sufferings, he never once spoke a word. You look at all the sufferings that I mentioned to you before. You know, he never once spoke a word. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter who opened not his mouth. Not once did he speak during all those sufferings he went through concerning himself. But now he's on the cross. And he says seven things. They must be important. If this is the first time he really spoke about the things concerning his person, his work, why he came, and what, what the result of that would be. And the first one he has here in verse 34, it says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want to draw your attention to the very first word. Sometimes we look at that first word, and I'm sure you don't pay any attention to it. Then, then, well, what does that then refer to? Well, it refers to everything that took place from Luke 22, verse 54, up to 23, 33. 33 is just a summary of those verses. And then when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Remember, that's just a summary of all that took place starting in chapter 2, 22, verse 54. All kinds of details. It was after all of this, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Jesus said, is the second little phrase here. And it's interesting to note what he said, what he was doing, he was praying. He's addressing the Father. And he's praying. And what you have here is a prayer of intercession. A prayer of intercession for all of those responsible for his rejection. His pain, his suffering, his crucifixion, his enemies. Father, forgive them. You see, this is who he's praying for. It's an intercessory prayer for those of his enemies. And that prayer itself is a prayer of forgiveness. A prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. You see, here we see the power of prayer for sinners. Do you understand how important it is to pray for sinners? I know back here you do. But you know, this is the very first thing he did. He prayed for sinners. 
How often do you pray for sinners? All of us are sinners, you know. I'm saved by the grace of God, yes, I understand because of what he has accomplished, but you know, part of the reason I am saved is because there were people praying for me as a sinner before I was saved. And that's true of every last one of you who are saved. We all have loved ones, acquaintances, or sinners who are not saved. How often do you pray for sinners? It's important we understand here. It's important to pray for sinners. Why? Because the desire of God's heart and the purpose of Christ's death is that sinners can be forgiven. Father, forgive them. In first er, Colossians 1 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, through his death, even the forgiveness of sins. We might ask a question, Father, forgive them. Well, was the Lord's Prayer answered? For those he prayed for. Now we know in the course of the events of what is taking place is he's looking out over the masses of those who we just talked about who are at the cross. Well, was his prayer ever answered? Well, let's turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it just brings to mind that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and of course that's an important thing to keep in mind because that's when the Spirit of God came into the world to indwell those and the, and the dispensation of the church age began. So in that first verse, which we're not going to read, I want you to look at what Peter was preaching starting in verse 22. In verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did th through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. So who was there when Peter was preaching this first sermon? Well, many of those who were there when the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death. And he went on to say, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now go to verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And finally, turn over to chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 
He's still speaking. This is his second sermon, but it's still the same group of people for the most part. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name has made the man strong whom you see and know. And know. Yes, the face which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now, was the Lord's prayer answered? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, it's interesting as you look at this aspect of the, the forgiveness. You know, many of his enemies that he was praying for saw the transcription above the cross. Also, they were jeering him. They were his enemies. You know, somebody said it was not Peter's eloquence that caused 3,000 to believe and be baptized. It was the Savior's prayer and power that brought it about. Now, we're aware that James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. This was an effectual fervent prayer of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for sinners. And God the Father answered that prayer. Oh, not every one of them was necessarily saved, but many of those who were there were. And that prayer was answered. Many of them became members of the first group of the body of Christ. Because at Pentecost, the Spirit of God came into them and changed their lives just as he has yours and mine who've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to this phrase. They know not what they do. I never thought about that an awful lot. The first thing that comes into your mind is, well, how can they not know what they're doing? And in one sense, that's true. Uh, you know, they knew and understood what was taking place before their eyes. In fact, it was their earnest desire to bring about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they were there. They knew what was going on in that sense. They were cheering, mocking. We, some of the songs and things that were said this morning spoke to this. So in a sense, they knew exactly what they were doing. Because that was the desire of their heart to do it. And it was now being done before their eyes. But you see, what they were ignorant of, or what they knew not, was that it was the Lord of glory that they were crucifying. That's what they were ignorant of. 
And as I thought about that, you know, they should have known. They should have known who he was. You see, here we see the blindness of the human heart. You know, but for the grace of God, you would still be blind. You would still be blind, just like they were blind. You see, they should have known. Their blindness was inexcusable. And why is that? Well, they were aware of the many Old Testament prophecies which spoke of his coming, both his first coming and his second coming. But we know they focused on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the most part. You know, there's many prophecies in Scripture, but the book of Isaiah, for instance, chapter 35, 5 and 6, chapter 50, verse 6, and of course all of Isaiah 53, we, we use these many times as we're remembering and thanking the Lord at the Lord's table. And of course, many of them heard him speak, and they even acknowledged, never man spake like this man in John 7, 46. What do you mean, never man spake like this man? Well, with such authority, with such grace, with such wisdom. They had heard the scribes teach and speak all the time. But never with this type of authority. And never with this type of grace. It's tough to speak of grace when you're pounding the law. And this man spoke of grace and wisdom. They understood that. They even vouched to that fact. And of course, many of them saw or heard of his many miracles and observed his sinless life. Many heard the Heavenly Father say at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, they were ignorant, but they shouldn't have been. But here we see is revealed is just how blind the human heart really is to the things of God. You see, there was no excuse in their ignorance then, nor today. But isn't it amazing today how ignorant the world is about who Jesus Christ really is? We just got through celebrating the Christmas season. But you know, the number of people who understand it was God, Emmanuel, who came into the world, they're totally ignorant of. They're willfully ignorant, Peter says. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks in Matthew in quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 6, that they willingly closed their own eyes and their own ears so they would not believe the truth. And it's no different today. Why are men and women so ignorant about who the Lord Jesus Christ is, who the babe in the manger was, who the one on the cross was. He was the Lord of glory. But they were ignorant. And it just shows us the blindness of the human heart. 
You know, there was no evidence for their, or excuse for their evidence, as I mentioned, nor there is today. Those at the cross were, and those in the world today are willfully ignorant of who was being crucified on the cross that day. And you know, Easter isn't too far down the road. It'll be here before you know it. And we'll be celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's face it, most of the world will not be celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because they are willfully ignorant of who he is. I hope you're not in that category. You may have heard this many times, but you know, if the Spirit of God is convicted, you haven't responded, let's face it. You're willfully ignorant of accepting this blessed truth of who he is. And you know, we have to understand that ignorance is not innocence. Ignorance is not innocence. Sin is always sin in the sight of God. Sins of ignorance need atonement, need forgiveness just as much as do the conscious sins that we commit. In fact, if you go and read about the sin offering in Leviticus, what is that offering for? It states for the sins of ignorance. Sins you don't know anything about. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. Conscious sin, unconscious sin. Yes, you may be ignorant, but you're not innocent. You're a sinner and you're guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And I thought here we see mankind's dire need to be forgiven from sin by God. But we also see the ground on which the Holy God will forgive sin. It was in view of the blood he was shedding that the Savior prayed, Father, forgive them. And we kind of related to that a little bit at the Lord's table this morning. There's only one way that the Father can forgive sin. It's because of what the son was doing when he made this statement, Father, forgive them. Knowing that the blood he was shedding, his death, was the only means by which the father could forgive sin. And that was now beginning to take place. How thankful we are that we know that fact. After Jesus Christ's resurrection before his ascension, he said in Luke chapter 24, 46 and 47, Thus it is written, and thus it behoove Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission or, or forgiveness follows of sin should be preached in his name among all nations. The Lord Jesus Christ said this, Repentance and remission, forgiveness. Do you notice the order? Repentance first, remission, forgiveness second. You can never be forgiven until you repent of your sin. 
And you will never repent of your sin as long as you are willfully ignorant of the necessity of doing so and the realization of the only one you can go to for that forgiveness of sin. Another thing we see here is the redeeming love of God has made forgiveness possible. We're all familiar with 1 John 4, 9, and 10. Here it is manifested the love of God. God sent forth his Son that we might have life. Here it is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation that which satisfies God for the sin problems. You see, all that remains for us is to confess and repent of the sin and claim the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has made possible through his atoning death on Calvary's cross. You know, in John 5, 24, we are told very simply by the Lord himself. He says, he that will hear, listen with a view of obeying my word, and believe, and believe him who sent me will have everlasting life and will not come into condemnation or judgment. Why? Because you have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life by believing what God the Father and God the Son has said about the Son, who he is, and his atoning work on Calvary's cross. Oh, don't neglect this great salvation that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this one other thing, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You know, victory is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are never to neglect God's great salvation. And I know I've been coming here for years. I know most of you, and I know you know the Lord, but I don't know all of you. It's possible there's someone here this morning who has never truly accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Anyways, you look at this particular little statement. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, Let's move on to the second one. We'll just get started on this one, and we'll finish it up tonight. The second statement is found in the same passage. Back to Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. And here we have the words of salvation. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now we're going to stop at that point for the moment, because right here we do have the second statement. Now, it was no accident that the Lord of glory was crucified between two thieves. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says, God declared his son should be numbered with the transgressions. Now, why was this necessary? Well, of course, several things come to mind from Scripture. 
when it could be to fully demonstrate the depths of the shame into which he descended. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Know ye not the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? For though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Another possibility. It was to show mankind's estimate of the Holy One of God. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected of men. Now again, what is the statement before us here? In verse 42. Lost it here for a moment. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into my kingdom. No, I think I've got the wrong passage here. Oh, no. And Jesus said to him in verse 43, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The thing I want to reinforce here and emphasize as you look at this particular passage, showing man's estimate of the Holy One of God being despised and rejected of men. They vividly saw God's great salvation, man man's response to it. And we're gonna see that here as we look at the great plan of salvation. And we go in, I don't have time to get into the details to a great amount here, but remember, there were two different thieves on the cross. And in the two thieves, we have a representative aspect of what salvation is all about. <clears throat> you see, one responded to what the Lord was saying, and one did not. So what you see before us here is a vivid picture of God's great salvation and how man responds to it. I heard about God's great plan of salvation since I was an infant, practically. But I didn't respond to it right away. How long did it take you to respond to, to God's great plan of salvation? You know, when you stop and think about it, the number of people I have witnessed to, and I look, I look back at these men at the Haven, that's what the place was called in Nassau, you know, some would sit there with a blank on their face. And some would all of a sudden begin to really listen. Now, it wasn't because of what I was saying. It was the Spirit of God working in the hearts and lives of believers. But, you know, all of them, I, I truly believe, and the Word of God is being taught, the Spirit of God is speaking to everyone. He's speaking to everyone. But you see, there's two responses. Either you will respond to what he is bringing before you, or you won't. And as we go through the salvation thing, we're going to see how the Lord really worked in this fashion in the hearts and lives of one who is willing to listen to what was being said and what was going around on around him, 
and one who was totally oblivious of the one next to him and what was going on around him. Also, it's to reveal God's sovereignty and salvation is of the Lord. Yet we see God's sovereignty is never meant to destroy human responsibility. I'd like to have you just first to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 a second. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 3 and 4. For this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Now there are people in the world who believe that that isn't true. That Jesus Christ didn't die for all mankind. But scripture is very clear. He gave his life a ransom for all. And yet we're going to see as we look at this second statement in more detail today. Man's response to what the Lord has said. You see, some accept it and some won't. Why is it again? It's because some are willfully ignorant. They don't want to accept the truth of who Jesus Christ was and why he came into this world. You see, it is desire that all mankind should be saved. We all know that John 16, 316, for God so loved the world. We know the world in there means all mankind. That whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We see that salvation is by grace and mercy alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you're saved through faith. Titus 3, 5. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. See, there was nothing in the life of the saved thief that merited salvation. Nor is there anything in your life or mine that will merit salvation. See, salvation is of the Lord. Make no mistake about it. There is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby he must be saved. And that one is the one we're talking about who is hanging on the cross, who is making a statement to this individual. Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, we don't have time at this point, so we're going to stop it at this point in time, but we're going to briefly look at, at this thief and his utterances and what took place in this one thief's life as a result of what that resulted in the Lord saying what he said in this particular verse. So I trust you'll be able to come out tonight 
and listen to what this thief did. What he heard, saw, listened to, and responded to. And how he responded. And how in contrast, the other one, who had the same opportunities, rejected it. Well, I trust that we've at least wet your whistle a little bit as to the importance of these little sayings. The first one, of course, which we spent the most time on is Father, forgive them. They have no idea they're crucifying the Lord of glory. That prayer was answered. Not just at Pentecost amongst the 3,000, but it's happened every day since. And you and I are trophies of that same grace and love and mercy because we listened. We responded to what the Spirit of God had revealed to us. And we have been forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleansed us from our sin. So I'm with Bob. I'm hoping this next year I want to be with that one who forgave me my sin. He's the one who made it possible through the shedding of his blood. No other reason will we be there than the fact that he could now pray, Father, forgive them because I am dying for their sin. The sin question has been settled. And next, we're going to focus in on the response to that. And the response is the blessed one. Oh yeah, today you will be with me in paradise. But something had to happen to that thief, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. How it was brought about where the Lord Jesus Christ could say to that man, Today, you will be with me in paradise. May the Lord bless these few thoughts, and as we continue them this evening, Lord willing, shall we pray. Our gracious God and dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the completeness of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at these seven sayings of Christ on the cross. They're re recorded for a specific reason. They're extremely important in revealing the entire plan of salvation from beginning to end. And we trust that the Spirit of God, as we go through these things, will just truly cause our hearts to rejoice in the greatness of our God and Savior, and the greatness of his atoning work, and the results that it brings in the hearts and the lives of those who are willingly uh, willing to accept these blessed truths. Just part us now with your blessing and bring us back this evening, we ask in your blessed name. Amen.